We're rolling. With the uh, You can now make a comment on my t-shirt. I'm not going to make a comment on your t-shirt on air. I'm not paid ad. Okay, fine. We can get sponsored by Yoshi and Kenneth. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Macon, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. I'm wearing a graphic t-shirt today. Kind of, sort of. It's still black, joking. though. Eugene is wearing a t-shirt made by our friends, Flagrant Hot Sauce, Yoshi and Kenneth. And Matt. And Matt. Sorry, Matt. Um, it, it looks good. Also, their hot sauce is good. Probably better than the t-shirt. If I had to pick one. Yeah. Okay. Like, Glad if you're you... going to go products-wise, like, they're in the business of selling hot sauce, You not would hope that their teas. hot sauce is better than their t-shirt. I would hope so. I also believe that it is. I'll ask them later if they'll take offense to that. Don't don't have them listen to the podcast. Right. That's fine. I was like dead literally 10 minutes ago. What changed? I think I, dr- I pounded a big water. I had like a very hectic 15 hours. What went on? Well, I had a, well, I had a game last night at 9 p.m. And then it... You for, played two games in well, the last whatever happened. So some guy hours? got hurt on the pitch and then the ambulance had to come. Whoa. And then... The game went into PKs, into pens. British people call them pens, penalty kicks. And it, the game didn't end until 11.30. And then I had a game at 1 p.m. Today. today. Yeah. So you went to bed. I couldn't even sleep last night. That's another thing. I went you were to bed, so like, adrenaline? I was so adrenaline. Is that a... so, Sorry. I'm also tired, but for a completely <laughs> different reason. For once, I can call out Sharice on being grammatically incorrect. So adrenaline. Because... <laughs> so adrenaline. But anyways, no, like... <laughs> because you had sleep. so much I was adrenaline? tired last night. Well, I even... Yeah, I don't know. Anyways. Oh, weird. Um, I got my second shot on Monday. Can I ask you how you feel psychologically now that you have the full vaccination? Well, technically, I'm not fully vaxxed. Because scientists say it takes two weeks. Oh, okay. Well, after your second shot to be fully vaccinated. To be. But I do feel really good about having, so I feel very good psychologically about having gotten my second shot. And I do feel, I don't know how much more percentage, but I feel safer. Yeah. But it's like this weird thing, right? Because it's like kind of abstract, like this abstract sense of greater Still masking safety. up though. Yeah. Still masking up. Um, as it we still do in Hong Kong, me. everyone wears masks in so public areas. In the last, whatever, call it two years, you've met a lot of people. And for whatever reason, there's certain people that you might see on the regular, but the first time you see them with other masks, you're like, oh, is that the same person? Yeah. Stanley and I have talked about this. Yeah. Like, y- even you see their profile picture, like on WhatsApp, and you're like, oh, that's what they look like. Because yeah. you've only ever seen them in person. Wearing a mask. Um, Anyway, I'm also tired. This is what this intro is about, being tired. Because I got hit quite bad with fatigue yesterday and then slept tons between like yesterday, 10 a.m. and now. And I still feel kind of tired. She's sitting today. I know. I'm not shaming you for sitting. I usually don't sit while we record. 
we usually stand. Recorded per usual out of FMBG. Get into it. You or me? Uh, you go first. Okay. So my subject this week comes inspired by an article in The New Yorker by an author I really like who I follow quite regularly. Her writing, her... Can I ask you what's your criteria for like liking an author or whatnot in general? Good writing? No, but, no, but <laughs> good writing, good writing, like, break bar. that down though. Okay. Yeah, sorry. That was a kind of throwaway answer. Yeah. Good writers I follow. Because up until recently, I never followed writers actually. I, like I followed writers. Not really. I mean, I started to pick them out a bit more frequently, but it's, but I, I would say that good, it's less about good writers, it's more about writers who write about topics I'm interested I mean, there's writers I follow because of their beat, which is what you're talking about. Yes. Like people who specifically cover tech or Gen Youth Z, culture or whatever. Yeah. Or specifically do MAs in media. Um, sure. But then in terms of writers who are more encompassing, I would say the ones that I follow tend to write personal writing. So even though they're covering something in news, like in FMB, or in this case, the article is about a museum, a lot of it does relate to this person's personal experiences and their life story. I don't know. I can't say exactly what draws me to them. A part of it is probably like being able to identify. So in this case, yeah. the author is Jiang Fan and she immigrated from China to the States at the age of eight. And there are some quite obvious connections that I feel with her in terms of, you know, having a Chinese background and then spending time in America. So that might be part of it. But I also genuinely think that she's a her writing is something that I enjoy reading is mm -hmm. usually well put in a way where it might be something I've yeah, been thinking I, about, but better articulated. I than guess I consistency have. is a big thing too, because you could come across the writing of an author or a writer, but if they don't do it consistently enough, you don't build that sort of relationship with them. So the article is titled the gatekeepers who get to decide what food is disgusting by Jiang fan published in the New Yorker. She has a virtual visit to the Disgusting Food Museum, which was opened in 2018 in Malmo, Sweden, by Samuel West, who is a 47-year-old psychologist who's lived in Sweden for the last two decades. He was, this is actually his second museum that he started. Interesting. He started a museum that was called the Museum of Failure. Yeah. And that was inspired by the Museum of Broken Relationships, which he didn't found. He visited the Museum of Broken Relationships, inspired. inspired by it to create the Museum of Failure. That actually sounds kind of interesting. The Museum of Failure is interesting. So basically, the ex exhibits are all things that on the surface seem to have been failed attempts at something. But the main mission of the whole museum is to say that failures lead to success. Oh, that okay, the experimentation of failures of that the trial and error eventually it's, leads to success. For example, like an, there's like a, yeah. some old Apple product. I forget the name of, I didn't write it down, yeah. but like some old Apple product that never went anywhere, and, but, but led the to design else. eventually yeah. led to the iPhone. Interesting. So that was his first experimentation with museums. And then in the same way, he started thinking about the human experience and emotion of disgust. And yeah. He asked this question of whether disgust can be challenged or changed, which I think is an interesting. That's actually really interesting. Question. I think 
I think actually it's it's incredibly important, right? Because I think disgust, because those visceral reactions themselves are the foundation of a lot of negative sentiment towards things. So mm-hmm. if you don't address it, it actually harbors or creates a certain environment. Yeah. And actually I have, you know, I it's funny, I had this exact conversation today. About around, disgust? Around, in, a, in a certain sense, around disgust in terms of like me just coming and becoming more comfortable with certain things, right? Like growing up a certain way, especially like, you know, the way I grew up in a very sort of like, I've said this before, like call it like a toxic masculinity type environment in Alberta, like kind of, you know, very, very heavy on sports, like the very prototypical, what it means to be a man, et cetera. Like there's certain things that you just generally were less accustomed to. Like, let's say two guys kissing, right? Like that's not disgusting to me now, but maybe as a kid, it was part of what I was taught mm-hmm. to be, you know, disgusted by. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that in itself has been something that's changed over the years. And like, there's certain things that, you know, for me, I might not enjoy looking at something, but I, I it doesn't, I understand it. Right. Well, I'm not, and I'm not using the example of like two guys kissing, but so much as like just in general, there's certain things that there are things that might not be your preference. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you have a prejudice against it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the that's difference. kind of what I'm trying to say. I, I do think that's an interesting question to ask yourself. Yes. You know, where is my dislike of this coming from? Is it a kind of disgust? That I'm just keep I'm just using the word disgust because that's like the subject that we're talking about yeah. today. Is it a kind of aversion that should be challenged? Like, yeah. is it my discomfort with drag that needs to be questioned? Yeah. Or is it just like I'm not into this show in yeah. a way that you would not be into? I don't know any any kind of show. Yeah. There's yeah. like loads of shows I'm not interested in watching. Right. Yeah. The emotion of disgust is a weird one, which I've not spent a lot of time thinking about. Later on in the article. Jai Ying says that it actually started scientifically with Darwin, where he theorized that disgust is similar to basic human emotions like happiness, anger, and sadness in the sense that it's universal. Humans Mm -hmm. everywhere around the globe understand what disgust is. And I never thought of it as like a basic thing like that. I don't know. I just thought, I don't know what I thought. Like, like you didn't think disgust was rooted in. I kind of feel like it's not a thing you should experience. From the sounds of what you're saying, disgust is something that is not a physical reaction. What do you mean? There's certain things, certain reactions that are not learned behaviors. And disgust can be just like, if I eat something that, that doesn't taste good as a baby, for example. Yeah. Like that immediately can. Like it's evoke, innate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a thing you are born with yes and it does make sense like the article goes into it it does make sense from an evolutionary perspective that you have disgust towards certain foods because if you eat something that's off that's rancid or has bacteria in it then you experience disgust and it keeps you it prevents you from eating it even if you don't know like scientifically that Mm. it's definitely bad for you your reaction keeps you from you know, harming yourself, essentially. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But I think like for me, culturally, I've thought of disgust as more along the lines of prejudice, that if you feel disgust towards something culturally, then it's worth examining 
why do I feel this aversion towards something? Yeah. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about like cockroaches, you know, or like there are some things that you're like, oh, you, you like that. Yeah. That's like for me, like I don't like cockroaches. Yeah. Right. Which I don't investigate as like having any deeper yeah. meaning. You have to look at like what this sort of like element of discussing food entails because there are certain things that probably even within a culture itself, it's not like you have unanimous uh, consensus that this is a good food. Like there aren't necessarily things that uh, let's use um, the fermented shark or like yeah, sticky that's one tofu. of them in the like, museum. I, you're not gonna find uh, like a I don't I don't remember the like a, a Nordic country where everyone's unanimously unanimously a fan of eating it. Yeah. Same thing with stinky tofu. Like you're in Hong Kong, like people don't like. Not everyone likes it. So I think that disgust in itself is actually a pretty interesting discussion because it's. I think that maybe driving it down this path of how do I put this? It's like driving it down a path of like um, prejudice. I feel it's kind of lazy in a way. Yeah, actually that's a lot of people's criticism of the museum is that food, even if the museum creators didn't intend for it to be that way, food becomes a stand in for a place and a people. So for example, stinky tofu, it becomes a stand in for representing all of China. And yeah. because you think of it, it's like in your mind, you equate, you make a bunch of false equations like, oh, stinky to tofu it equals China equals gross, yep. you know? And then instead of having like clarity, I was like, this is just like one food type that not even everyone likes. That's just That's like this kind of sort of like cultural, interesting thing, like not that significant really. Yeah. And it becomes, it, it represents much more than itself. Yeah. And not just like stinky tofu for China but like any food for any place i remember watching this thing on youtube where they would serve american chinese food to people from china or whatnot and it was interesting to hear their reaction yeah right it's yeah, something yeah. along those lines yeah so i can tell you a little bit more about the museum first which i do think is interesting from a creating a museum process West and a friend first had to determine what counts as food. So they ruled out artificially flavored gag foods and novelty foods. And then they screened 400 items based on four things. Taste, texture, smell, and process of being made. So it doesn't, doesn't have to satisfy all four of those things. Like if one of them is extreme enough that they deemed is disgusting then it could go into the museum. So a good example of this is foie gras. Yeah. Which most people would not think is disgusting from a taste, texture, smell perspective. Yeah. But because the process involves force feeding ducks yeah. until their livers like expand 10 times the size, that process is repellent enough yeah. to put it in the museum. So it wasn't just about like foods that smell bad, but I think that's a lot of the marketing is like, fermented fish and foods that are immediately like repellent from a smell um the foods are pretty wild like i would go to this museum if i was in sweden so some of the foods include svio a traditional icelandic dish where a sheep's head is cut in half and boiled a south korean wine that's made with the feces of children oh i know <laughs> i know i know 
There's a East African dessert made from millions of crushed flies. Uh. Frog juice from Peru. Doesn't sound too bad. A mouse wine from China made with rodents. Um, I'm going to stop now. I also feel actually kind of, I, f- I actually also feel a little bit nauseous thinking yeah. about these food well, items. I mean, this is kind of sort of like the more drilled down discussion that often happens is that who gets to define, I mean, that's kind of how you led with like who gets to define what's disgusting or not. Who's the gatekeepers. Yeah. Yep. And like, but I also think that in general, like this is such an interesting discussion because even if it is disgusting, there's clearly an interest in it because these foods are still on menus. Yeah. Wherever, right? You know what's interesting that the article raises the question is that so there's a perspective of gatekeeping, like foods labeled disgusting makes it a taboo. Okay. And so people are united by a disgust. Like that's taboo, right? We don't cut sheep's heads in half. Mm. But on the flip side, food that other people think is disgusting can be a unifying aspect of a tribe mm-hmm. in the sense that like oh well we all enjoy the process of cutting sheep's heads in half yeah and that brings us together yeah. as a community so it goes both ways i think like it's not just about like gatekeeping and some like s- supreme culture yeah, like, label something as disgusting it's like that is actually so that interesting food can bring people together on one of my footy teams there's this rite of passage where you do a drink called a flaming lambo do you know no, what a flaming lambo is i don't know what a flaming it's like lambo zambuca is. and like some sort of cream-based liqueur but anyways you light the zambuca on fire and then you pour it into like a martini glass and you have to continue drinking it with a straw until it's all done but sounds terrible. Exactly, right? Like it's it's a it's a disgusting drink. So it's exactly along the lines of what you said. So if you join the team, then you're expected to drink that at some point. Yeah. Or I mean, I can probably think of instances where I've gone on a trip and it doesn't even have to be a disgusting food. Like the one really bad meal you have, you know, on the side of the road, or the one that like you get food poisoning from, like that brings you together. Stanley's actually in the room that he has an actual experience like that. Oh, interesting. Where he and his brother and sister-in-law all got food poisoning. The from same like, meal. Yeah, from the same meal. And they still talk about that experience. Yeah. So it's interesting in that sense as well. Um, like repellent food experiences can be not not exclusionary, but like inclusive. Yeah. yeah. And Jiang fan, this goes back to what you were saying about like, um, Western foods being introduced to people who haven't had them. Yeah, She talks about her experience immigrating to the States and being repulsed by dairy products and how a lot of her immigrant Asian friends are also like their first time going to the States. I was like, what is feta cheese and burrata and sour cream and all this stuff tastes off to them, which if you think about it, it makes sense. The tartness could yeah. be off-putting, yeah. Yeah. And it's just this idea that like the things that you grow up with, you are familiar with and you don't think of them. You can't imagine them being repellent. I think you and I are quite fortunate because we've been able to grow up with a Western diet as well as an Eastern diet. So our 
vocabulary around food is is quite broad. But I, I was gonna like just to return to what you said. I think there's actually a lot of really powerful memory generation around disgust. I can remember with great clarity some of the most quote unquote disgusting things I've had. I remember I remember had scorpion in Vietnam. Have you ever been to this uh this izakaya in is it St. Mark's in New York? Yeah. Have you ever been? In? It's like inside, it's like a big room and it has a lot of like uh kind of kitschy Japanese posters. Maybe? It's pretty popular. It's been around for a long okay, time. There's an izakaya I'm imagining, but there's no way for me to know for sure if it's the same one you're picturing. It's just really famous. Anyways, I remember that bull penis. I didn't have yeah, that. I had that. What else? Like just things I, mean, like I had that. Balut in the Philippines yeah, when I was twelve. Balut, which I still really remember. Baloo is baby duck in its egg. And it's like fermented, isn't it? Is it not? I don't know if it's fermented, but you eat the whole yeah. baby duck. Like fe- feathers and I bones. mean, looking back, I wouldn't do it. But at yeah. that time, it was. Uh, well, I think what it is about that, what you're saying about memory generation, is that it's novelty in a really... Oh, yeah. It's definitely your first experience. In a really visceral way. And that's something that the author talks about as well, like, in her conversation with the museum founder, he says starting somewhere allows you to expand your reference point. You have to keep trying new things in order to adapt to it. That might have been my rephrase, but basically something along those lines. That I think it's important, not just in the sense that you overcome your aversion to things that are meaningful, you know, in the sense that like it might be a belief that you are overcoming your aversion to, but in the sense that, well, you and I would both agree that the more perspective you can take, it's valuable. Yeah. I mean, if you had Balut on the regular, every subsequent experience would be less meaningful. Like you wouldn't remember the Balut you had like four, four months ago or. No, there's a quote I have from the article. One of the wonders of the tongue is its sheer malleability. New tastes are acquired and seamlessly incorporated into the tapestry of one's gastronomic predilections. I don't remember the exact moment when I began relishing Western olives, but the change felt natural. With each new experience, the tapestry is rewoven. So that's saying what you said about like every sequential time you have something, it just becomes incorporated into your palate, which is like, as you said, you know, we grew up eating a very wide range of foods, there's not a whole lot that would phase us Yeah. in terms of like culinary experiences. Yeah, and then the piece does, because she's based in New York and Chinese, the piece does go towards the relationship between disgust and racial prejudice. That in the last two years, there unfortunately became a link between um, a disgust towards assuming that Chinese people eat bats or some other type of food and therefore behaving in racist ways mm-hmm. towards them. And I don't know. It's, I mean, obviously it's tragic. That's, that's quite obvious that, that that has happened is tragic. But it is this weird thing to leap from an aversion to people eating something to therefore being racist towards them. I think there's a leap there. But I also think that in general, though, aversion is probably in many ways rooted in a lack of education around something. Like for me, one of the things that I 
I think it's disgusting, but I still eat is like tofu. Right? Any tofu? I mean, I eat tofu now, but I just Sorry, like. Sorry, I was like shocked that you. Like would tofu say to any me tofu. Is, is is kind of like not the most ideal thing. Like I, I think like texturally, it's not great. Some tofu is better than others, but found it interesting how tofu was co-opted by the vegan and vegetarian community, mm. right? Yeah. But theoretically, me on paper, I should like tofu because I'm Asian. Yeah, you know? I do wonder if there's. I mean, I say I wonder, but obviously there is also kind of a problem with how foods that are deemed disgusting when made by the people who historically made it are then sanitized by chefs that are legitimate in some other way or like restaurants that are legitimate. And that's what you're talking about, like how tofu got this like completely new cultural perception because of vegetarians and vegans claiming it. How do you feel about that happening? For different food. Don't know how I really feel. Because at the same time, it's like food from the perspective of taste versus authenticity are two different things. They don't need to share the same sort of uh, overlap, right? Something can be totally inauthentic. But then again, that's even under question. We've had this discussion like, is American Chinese food not authentic? Well, it's a byproduct of a place and time, right? So it's authentic to that. So... I don't really think too much about it, but I can see how it can be very frustrating if the food you've been doing for however long just doesn't pick up steam until some other person with more visibility brings this to the forefront. And when that happens, it becomes more of a marketing issue than it becomes a actual issue around um, whether food is good or not. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a frustration related to money where you have, let's say you have dumplings in Chinatown that are like five bucks, like cheap, right? For a plate of them. And then the same dumplings are then sold at, you know, a a two Michelin star restaurant for 50 bucks. And I think that that can be very frustrating from Mm -hmm. a financial perspective. Like, how come you're willing to pay this much money for this food in this setting versus in this other setting where arguably like the people have been making it longer. Yeah. 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 And it's not, I agree. I don't think it's so much about like the authenticity of are these dumplings a real deal so much as like how come people are valuing that dumpling over this dumpling, Mm -hmm. which is about so many other things beyond like the actual taste. I think there's an interesting part at the end of this essay that goes in a different direction where Jiang Fan talks about self-disgust. So a disgust of who you are and that this can happen when other people consider something about your identity to be disgusting. And this is a quote. Something happens when you discover that you yourself are disgusting. It does not matter whether you believe it to be true. Shame and fear flood your body as involuntarily as the disgust face until a kind of self-disgust takes root. The origins of self-disgust have yet to be fully understood, but scientists speculate that emotion likely arises from the internalization of others' disgust. It is also a unique form of torture. To be perceived as repugnant is to live inside that repugnance, desperate to expel you from yourself. I can't say that I've experienced this myself. In just in the places I've lived and the people I've come across. 
but I think it speaks to disgust being instinctual. Like, you know, we talked about it being an innate feeling. And so you might find yourself like subconsciously taking on other people's instinctual feelings towards you and like rooting them within yourself. I was thinking about how does this relate to creativity? Because that's what we supposedly talk on the, talk about on this podcast. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's always a trend of hating on a specific illustration style. Yep. Like it comes and goes, but there will be waves of people hating on different looks of yes. illustration style. So right now, what people seem to be hating on is this like flat color, bold outline look. And it really bums me out that people hate on it because they're probably illustrators who do that work and they do that work because it's their style. Yeah. And it's not because they're like trying to be trendy. I mean, it could be because they make money that way, but it could also just be because that's like how they like to make their work. But I'd argue that when the hate emerges, it's at the end of the life cycle. So, at, but that know, doesn't change the fact that that's how someone draws. Correct. But I'm just saying like they, they kind of see the ups and downs of it. They've probably yeah. been able to capture more work because it was trendy. And then when it was sort of last week's news, yes, they might enter this lull. But I think that in general, I don't know. I, I, for me, the, the whole trend thing, like maybe this is the worst way of looking at it, but whether it's food, whether it's illustration style, like I think for me, the style and the, the execution matters very little. It's more about the intent and the thought behind it. Yeah. So like your style itself like could be typically played, like someone could say it's played out, but at the same time, if it has the intent or some sort of meaning behind it, then I think that sort of like balances things, balances things out. I think I just try to be careful about expressing aversion to any style because it's like what we said about preference, right? Where yeah. do you have an aversion just because, I don't know, because other people don't like it or you think it's like, is it you have a good reason for the aversion, essentially. And I generally think with like aesthetics, it's not. It's really just about personal preference. Yeah. Just like food is personal preference. Yeah. Like that's kind of what I'm saying. Like it all doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Why hate on what someone else likes to cook or draw? That's what I think. Yeah. That's where I wind up. Why hate it all? I mean, that's fair, isn't it? I mean, I think that- Either like everything or hate everything. My, my thought was that in terms of like disliking something, your goal is to create a certain reason behind it that allows people to see a perspective. And it's up still sure. up for them to understand whether or not this is valid or not. Right? And I think that's the thing we're just missing right now is it's not about whether something can be hated on. It's just- the way in which we present our disdain or our dislike or why we don't why we think something could be better. Yeah. Right? And I think just in general, being clear that a dislike for something is an individual choice rather than proclaiming this is a blanket gross thing that everyone should agree is gross. Yeah. Moving on? Yeah, let's move on.
What have you got today? My topic this week is China targets chaotic online fan groups to tame teen culture. This article by Lu Mengchao, who penned this for Six Tone, talks about the growing discussion around fan and celebrity culture in China. So in short, a ton of these fan groups have kind of consumed the lives of the people involved that participate within it. And they even include malicious streaks where, let's say you're a fan of uh, Group A and Group B is like a, call it a rival, right? You would actually go out of your way to bring down Group B's uh, status as a celebrity, a singer, whatever it may be. Okay. Right? And they're fan groups of real celebrities. Well, and, and, as in singers and yeah. actors and actresses. But I think to that, be clear about how these fan groups form. Yeah. I think that in terms of the malicious streak, perhaps it's something that might identify more with the current popularity around talent shows in China, where there's a definitive like, you really like this competitor and I really like that competitor. Are the talent shows you're referring to similar to The Voice? Because I yeah. haven't actually watched these. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And uh, one one such senior official of the Cyberspace Administration of China, Jiang Yongjun, mentioned that there's talks of standardizing the online behaviors of fan groups in hopes of reducing the amount of online abuse and hate. <laughs> Sorry, I'm only laughing because the use of the word standardizing here, I think that is a attempt that's going to fail. How do you standardize online fan group behavior? I mean, I think what it is is like creating parameters on what you can and cannot do. That to me is a standard, mm. right? And obviously this is like a, a whole nother discussion around the way China governs its digital landscape. But so one of the things that I think best represents this whole phenomenon is that something that happened quite recently was that a milk company partnered with a talent show Youth with you three. Youth with you? I don't know, man. I I didn't come up with the name. But also, <laughs> sorry, but, I'm but sorry. But also, but also, I think that it's probably a translation, right? Okay, talent show. Youth with you three. Yeah. Partners with a milk company to do what? For you to vote, you have to buy the milk product, and you redeem the QR code inside the bottle cap. Oh. So what happened was, the fans would go out. And they would buy en masse milk products, not because they were going to consume the milk, but because they wanted to vote. So what did that leave you with? It left people with a lot of like milk that just got kind of dumped and thrown away. So a lot of wastage. Yeah. And in actuality, like uh, this whole sort of like wastage of food has been an ongoing problem in China where they've just recently enacted new laws against food wastage. Yeah. Like even, I think we brought this up before, there's like, there was even limits on how many dishes you could order per table if you only had like a certain number of people and you can only order this many dishes because they didn't want people to waste food. Yeah. And obviously from an online streamer phenomenon like mukbangs where people are just like eating a ton of food on camera, like those days are kind of out. Yeah. Right. I think those are all, especially nowadays, those are even on a global level, very not not kosher, right? Like I think your food wastage in general amidst everything going on. So the streaming site that was the platform for this for this show, Aichi Yi, and the milk company apologized and social media and state media both really came down on the promotion itself. Uh, and I think that this is an interesting thing just as an aside when you attempt to incentivize something, but there's a negative outcome yeah. And I've talked about this before, like the Cobra effect where, yes, you yes, know, back I in the day. This. Yeah. So in short, like if you haven't, if you haven't heard of that concept before, what it comes down to is back in colonial India, there was an issue with the number of Cobras 
in just in the streets and whatnot. Yeah. So they incentivized people to kill cobras and bring them back and they would receive a reward. So what happened was people started growing cobras purely to redeem that bonus. Breeding. Yeah. But yes. And then once they once dissolved they, the whole scheme, yes, they scheme. wound up with more cobras than they started they got with. Into the because wild. Yeah. all of these people had been breeding extra cobras in order to get the rewards. So yeah, I mean things never go towards plans is what we've learned. Yeah. So from the sounds of it, I think that these fan groups fall into this what I call the call to action group, where they just follow the call to action to a T, right? And I think that in some ways, because they are so easy to I don't know if manipulate's the right word, but it's the one that comes to mind. It's basically they've figured out in conjunction with how society works to leverage people to go and act on a particular desired outcome manipulate might be that's the, the right one i can't I, I don't know like i i'm not saying like i know the full gamification behind it but what i'm trying to say is that like clearly it's gotten to a point where people are on mass going out and adhering to something yeah right i mean i don't think it's just this happens to be something that's happened in china Yes. But I would not say that it is exclusive to it's China. Definitely a global thing, I would definitely say. Definitely a global thing and definitely in relation to celebrity culture. Yes. Where people who are fans of any individual can be very easily mobilized to do something. It's a phenomenon. Like you even see it on certain YouTubers where if you're a big fan of this streamer, like and someone talks shit about the streamer, like you'll have hundreds of people just jump in. And then the original YouTuber has to be like, I didn't ask you to do that. I didn't this ask you happens, to dox this person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't stop being the way you are, essentially. So it's like not even necessarily, it, it, it's out of control, I would say. Like sometimes they do the thing that the celebrity's interested in them doing. Yeah. Like whatever that is, buying a product or something. But often it can, be beyond what they expect or want. Yeah. Oh, there's a recent, this is just celebrity gossip. Henry Cavill. No the, idea. The actor who plays Superman. Mm, Christopher Reeve. You know what? It's fine. Don't worry about it. Anyway, he started dating. He publicly basically announced that he's dating this new woman. And then his fans all, for whatever reason, I don't fully understand why I don't like her. And then they went on her Instagram and left like lots of super hateful messages saying like, you know, stop dating. Yeah, this Cavill has happened before. All of this stuff. And it's just so. That happens in like Asian celebrity culture too. Oh, where I'm sure. You don't globally. want. Where you have like, quote unquote, like these uh, sex icons that need to almost be like low key single the whole time. Yeah. Because it wrecks their persona. It doesn't wreck their persona. Well, because their fans will be unpredictable, behave en masse unpredictably towards like whichever person that you wind up, you know, dating. Yeah. So. So I think in short, my interest behind this was kind of a, like a broader oversweeping insight into why has celebrity culture become such a dominant force? And the role that we need to take in terms of like managing it a bit better, 
Right. And like, for example, this is this is obviously a big philosophical discussion around like, well, how much should your government get involved? As I kind of told you earlier, I think there's a lot of things this conversation could go in terms of direction. But I think the reality is that maybe focusing on what are the underlying challenges within a global influencer experience is probably a starting point. Because I think that before in the past, I might defer to like, well, in Asian culture, they're a little bit more collectivist. So that's why it's so much easier to engage them. But I don't think that's the reality. It's just that like maybe the youth themselves, because they're often looking for this sense of um, identity and sort of a group and community, it just so happens that celebrities offer an amazing opportunity to create and foster that. So that in reality, like how do you actually divorce the two? Because growing up is growing up. Like you actually have certain things that are going on in your life as a kid that just play out. Like uh, for me, everyone's more impressionable when they're a kid for a certain reason, right? So now you're in a space where the targeting is so, so clear. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, like you said, growing up is growing up. The intensity of feelings you have growing up is just, I don't know what magnified like 10 times 20 times higher than like when you're an adult and you just become really attached to whatever it is that you are interested in or disinterested in and i think that's just like growing up period i would i have confidence in saying like even before the internet that's what it was like growing up and it was whatever you had back then pre-technology you know think about it like that we're growing up it was like oh be careful of your friends trying to peer pressure you into smoking yeah. and all that other shit, right? Yeah, like, Because yeah. right now, all I can think about is, will this ever reach a, a point in time where it starts to enter a space that needs to be regulated? Cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, like like cannabis, yeah, gambling. Like These are all things that have a certain sort of regulatory body around them. Well, for this instance... I do think that platforms need to have regulation and standardization. It does happen that in China, it's the government. But actually, in other countries, I think whatever the dominant platform is should be required, whether that's by the government or that the the platform itself comes up with its own rules. Like there need to be a system for moderation and prevention of hate speech and reporting bad actors like that's. I think that has to be part of whatever product is being yeah. used. Like I, I don't know who is the person who enforces that. In this case, it's you know the actual the government who's making sure that happens. But in other places, it might not have to reach that level. Um, it could be some other body. But I think we've seen we've seen so much of this happen in online spaces that to tell ourselves that there doesn't need to be moderation is a lie. It's very difficult because in the first conversation today, we basically said like, no one should be told what they can and cannot eat per se, right? What they deem to be disgusting. But in this flip side, it's like, well, actually we have to build some parameters in. I mean, they're not necessarily one-to-one in terms of discussions, but I do think that it's interesting to like continually try to identify the places in which you can put your foot down and the places where you just cannot or it's not worth it. I guess the question is how much 
can you love something before it means harming someone else? Yeah. But that's also like addiction. Basically, like there, this feels a bit like a form of addiction to the persona. Yeah. Straight up. Like if you're going to go to these lengths to like go waste money to buy milk to dump it out because you need to vote, then I think that Mm. that borderlines on addiction in a way. Well, framing it as addiction then raises the question of who is responsible slash is someone responsible for protecting an individual from how they might harm themselves? I mean, which people would definitely come out to say more strongly, like there shouldn't be. I mean, left to its devices, I don't think you can expect the companies that are running the campaigns to take their foot off the gas. Yeah. But I do think, you know, when it, when people are encouraged, this is hard to say, when people are are encouraged to behave in ways that could potentially harm themselves as individuals, it's unlikely that companies will step in and do something. But it's easier to demand companies do something when an individual is harming someone else. So in the sense of of like, when, when fan group A is actively going out and whatever it is attacking fan group B B, then something very clearly needs to be done right because like I'm saying your love of something is now hurting another group but if your love of something is hurting yourself because you're spending too much money or you're spending all your hours doing something then it's less likely that regulatory bodies are going to be put in place to control that we're entering some like sort of unprecedented times and usually that's used as it pertains to COVID, but right now I look at it from the perspective of just like the evolution of digital culture, right? I think that digital culture has accelerated a lot of things, made it a lot easier, a lot easier to find and reach people, to build consensus, to put these people in the same sort of spaces that you might have to really rethink what rules we need to write for this. Because like I said, I, I think left to its own devices, you're kind of in for a world of hurt. Like there's a lot of things that are easy to gamify in a way. The milk company probably sold way more milk in that week than they've sold ever. So from a business perspective, that's correct. From a branding perspective, it's bad. But then again, it's like there's different ways to kind of, there's different product that wasn't created in a way that could be wasted, right? Who's stopping you from doing the exact same thing? It was a digital asset or something where like, hey, you know what? I I basically print this out of thin air, but you still need to buy it. You spend a dollar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to think because it's like we, even you and me, we talk about these subjects about digital culture and living our lives online, but our own behavior is being modified day to day. So it's hard to like have a firm foothold because even how you and I respond to digital media is constantly changing. Yeah. I was having this conversation with our friend Charlene earlier about how she was saying that humans didn't evolve to be concerned about the entire world. Yeah. E- evolutionary speaking, we were meant to be concerned about like the hundred people closest to us. Yeah. Because that's like what was going to get us food and shelter and, you know, uh, have us have a partner and kids. Right. Yeah, that's so true. But then in the last 20, 30 years with the Internet, now we are constantly globally aware. 
of what's going on, like on a minute level in India and Palestine and the States and Hong Kong. And how do you even like, how does your brain process all of that? Yeah. And you need to, in a way, process it because things are so interconnected because of globalization. It's hard to say, I'm going to not. It's hard to be like, okay, brain, don't focus on all of these other inputs that are now in front of you. Yeah. But at the same time, it feels like we are ill-equipped to deal with it. Yeah. That's a good place to wrap up for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in these conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>